Dear GTM strategist, in this episode, we will uncover how to get to the mysterious product market fit, how to measure it, and how building in public actually helps you get there faster. With us is Enzo Avigo. He's a brilliant product leader who has worked at stellar companies such as Intercom, Zalando, N26, and many more. Now, he's a co-founder and CEO of the Next Generation Analytics Tool for B2B SaaS, June. So. The company was admitted to Y Combinator, won Data Analytics Golden Kitty Award on Product Hunt, and was the fastest growing app based on the Twilio segment data in 2022. Buckle up and enjoy the show. Let's go to market. Enzo, hi. It's so good to have you on the podcast. I've been obsessing myself with your LinkedIn posts. And the first questions that I naturally have to ask you is how do you define product market fit for God's sake? <laughs> I've been also obsessed with some of your content. So uh, that's that's awesome to be here. Um, PMF, lots of definition. Lose one is um, that everything breaks and you're under tension all the time. I like this one. Um, and then kind of a hard one I would say is you're making money and you're growing at a very sustaining growth every month. So for B2B SaaS, it's pretty like the growth of the monthly recurring revenue. And I guess if you grow in between five and 20% every month and it's consistent and you don't start from zero, I guess that's also a good definition. So a mix of the two, maybe a bit of quality, maybe in that you could do the NPS or the the Chanelis uh, survey, stuff like that. But um, as far as we tried them at June, I think they were res- less relevant than the two other indicators. Okay, so with the June, may I say .so, so everybody knows what the official link is. I mean, when you were thinking about product market fit, it gets really delicate, right? Because sometimes you know sooner that you don't have it than when you do have it. And it is just like a roller coaster. It's a moving target. Can we be a little bit more intimate about your experience with product market fit? Yeah, I mean... It's it's true that it's a moving target, but sometimes the target moves very slowly and sometimes it moves very fast. So a market where things move very fast was the whole virtual office thingy during the COVID, right? So we couldn't go to the office and then suddenly we won't have to, to have this feeling of proximity. And so there were all these platforms where you could connect and move around with your keyboard, talk with other people, and it just felt like kind of you were in the office. And these companies like had massive, massive traction. And today, they most of them closed because they lost the PMF, as far as I understood, because people are back in the office or maybe they're more hybrid or something like that. So this was a, a fast-moving target. Honestly, in the data landscape, so the space we evolve into, I've been surprised about how slowly the targets moved. So one of the starting points when we, when we left our job with my co-founder from Intercom to start June was... Um, okay, if we don't do that, no one is going to do that because we've been working in product for like almost a decade and it doesn't look like the industry has evolved a lot. And then when I joined, when I started my company, you know, things were moving very fast for me because, you know, startup world. And I thought like, oh, whoa, 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 the target is moving very fast. We need to move on really fast. And most of the bets I took two or three years ago never happened. Like most of the things I thought that were going to happen, like concentration in the space, companies that would acquire each other or layers of integration that would, uh, you know, merge and so on, never really happened. And I think uh, a lot of industry tech 
a lot of time to move, uh, you know, forward. So SaaS, I think, is one of them, to be honest. And this is why when you see AI or other technologies like that, it's super, super exciting. So for us, in fairness, um, we've been working a lot on the initial prime statement that we had. And I think we've been hammering on, on it. And we realized that the target was not moving too fast, as I said, but also that solving a, the prob a problem the right way could take a lot of iterations. So I think this is where probably I would emphasize the most these days. It's It takes a lot of time to reach PMF, not so much because the problem changed. I think they don't change too often. Actually, I had a really good chat Monday with a, um, Bob Mesta, the co-founder of The Job To Be Done, about the fact that the jobs don't really change over time. But I think what does change and what takes time is actually to build a solution. And so um, our journey has been mostly about iterating to reach that PMF, basically. Got it. And especially with like data tools and integration tools, there is this huge issue of trust, right? So even if I am trying something like really trivial, such as CRM or just like analytics is the whole hour ever because that's a commitment that's almost like going into a marriage together. Uh, the thing is that like there is a lot of upfront work and you are taking these decisions more conservatively as if you would just be testing the next piece of software for recipe writing for pancakes right so just like the stakes are higher and i was just like a little bit concerned when i am trying this type of new softwares whether i yeah. can trust the company and was there something that you like had to just like address on your journey or not so much yeah, I mean, you touch on a lot of interesting things. I think you touch on the um, the data quality, so one aspect of mm -hmm. the, the software. And then you, you touch, I think, a little bit on the size of the, the MVP or the size of the product, right? So for, for us, the data quality came out as something very important from the early discovery, user discovery. Even before we started to write the first line of code at June, clearly we learned that not trusting your analytics was one of the main reasons why people would not start or would actually drop because eventually it would become a black box and they would just move on. So I think I think this one where I identified it, you're right. If people can't trust you, uh, it's usually going to be a problem. This being said, I think when you start and you have the early adopters or the early believers, most of the time people don't care about your SOC 2 uh, you know, uh, approval, basically. So uh, we didn't have it in the first months, but I think we it kicked in very quickly. quickly. And one thing maybe which is uh, fun about that story that I can share is that one of the way we solved that problem initially actually led us to something very important for us. So basically, the way we solved the problem of data quality in the beginning of June was by allowing people to click on the graphs so that they know exactly what data point they, they, they are behind, right? And it was something where we were frustrated with Google Analytics. You see graph and you never know what's behind. It's a black box, right? So basically in June, you can click on the graph. There is a, a panel that opens and you see the data point. And that thing, actually, people loved it. And they told us that now that they see the user's name and stuff like that, they would love to take actions on these users, right? And that pushed us into like a whole new direction of possibilities for June that we didn't really uh, anticipate. So uh, yes, these problems are important. You're right. Yes, it's important to explore them and try to solve them quickly so that they don't hold back your audience even though the early adopters don't care too much, in my opinion. 
But I think what's more, even more interesting here is that trying to solve these problems can actually lead you in different horizons that you initially thought about. Gosh, I love this. And you literally trash, uh, touched upon like this innovation adoption curve, the bell curve. And why mm-hmm. don't you walk us through your journey to product market fit? So how did you get your early adopters? When were these signals of product market fit emerging? When were you like, high five, we should continue this. This is like our mission. It's worth fighting. And how the things went afterwards. Could you just tell us your story? Yeah, yeah. So so something you said in the previous question, which I'm going to uh, touch on together with this question, is you, you said like a lot of people are not eager to try analytics just for the, tr- the sake of trying it. And so I think something we learned initially is that the analytics or the data category is a category where the bar to PMF is fairly high, which is the last thing you want to tell yourself as a founder, because basically telling yourself that you need to build a lot or inject a lot of money to solve a problem and prove that you have PMF is usually a way to lie yourself to yourself, right? Usually you don't need that. But analytics is kind of like CRMs in a way. I think uh, you don't adopt them just to like a toy, like for fun, right? It's actually a pretty big decision that you make and you at least want to spend six months or 12 months. And one of the reasons, as you said, is also because sometimes setting them up can be a pretty big upfront investment. And so you want to, uh, you want to be mindful of like, what's the ROI you get from that investment you make, right? So going back to your question of like, what were the stages? Given that we knew that our category would be a bit harder to crack than the traditional category or a new category, we started to look for early signals of PMF, what I call micro signals in the, in the book I'm currently writing, <laughs> which is basically uh, all these little things that can indicate whether you're in the right direction or not. And what I hate about PMF is that it feels like it's binary. It feels like you have it or you don't. You have it or you don't have it, and it's true. It is binary. You have it or you don't have it, but um, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a spectrum. You gradually go to PMF. Some people just it just works overnight, but for most people it's graduate. And the reason I know that is because June is actually a really good way to know if you have PMF, because you have retention curve and stuff like that that indicates if people stick around, which is a very strong indicator of PMF. And we know this curve, uh, talking with customers and going on calls every day, we know that these curves don't get perfect on day one. Like they, they're very bad in the beginning and then they progressively move on. And some of the most successful people that use June went through like very, very tough moments. And I would actually argue that it's the, the default, right? And so, um, yeah, we've been looking for these signals. I think there are some super early signals that we had. And then there are some later stage signals. But basically the first ones were, uh, the willingness to take a call with us. When you reach to someone talking about a problem, asking if someone has a couple of minutes to talk about it, if you get 99% of people saying no, like chances are it's not a real problem or chances are that it's going to be very hard to reach your audience anyway when you build something. And so it's maybe not the right direction. So we had, in retrospect, really good response rate on our early user discovery emails. And I never... I didn't understand at the time that it was an early signal, but is looking backward, I can I can fairly confidently say that it is it is one. I think things changes when you start to go in the solution phase. Talking about Prime is great; it's an early signal, but when you start to build something and you tell people, "Look, I have a potential solution for you, or a framework, um, a wireframe, or whatever," suddenly people project themselves in a very different situation, which is that, "Ooh, I might, I might be using that product." 
I might tell that founder that I'm willing to try it if they give it to me. And so people are a lot more mindful about what they tell you. And I think here, when you give a prototype to someone and they take time to try it and give you feedback, uh, assuming that it's not your, your mother and not someone that loves you and is biased, I think it's a good signal that you, you're moving in the right direction. I think then people using it is a good signal. So if you have daily users, weekly active users, and a good retention, and I think ultimately revenue is the only uh, uh, moment of truth, right? Given, I mean, assuming that you're charging for your product, you might be, you know, monetizing with ads or stuff like that. And and I think the leap from having active users to having paying users, I think it's a very big leap. I think you, so when you start charging, you realize that the people that are paying are not necessarily the people that were the most active nor that they're actually willing to pay for what you assume were the main features of your product. So the sooner you can take that leap and move and, and start charging or figure out your monetization, the sooner you're going to get some very critical learnings. So uh, when we put the monetization in place at June, for instance, uh, a lot of the, act the most active people were indie makers, game makers, things like that, that had a very low uh, proportion to pay. On the other end, we had B2B SaaS that were just uh, getting so much value from figuring out if accounts were active, for instance, that these people would easily pay 100, 200 bucks, 300 bucks a month to, to make you know, thousands of bucks uh, or dozens of thousands of bucks on, on, on their customers. So um, yeah, so I, I think these steps were very important. It's a, a building blocks game. So you have to, through all the phases I mentioned and these micro signals, a lot of aspects of your business are going to change. The product you're building, the features, the way you pitch them, the way you assemble them. And I think the way you distribute it also is going to be very important. Like product market fit is product and market. So it's the way you conceptualize something, but also the way you distribute it, right? So I could go forever and ever on this one. So I'm going to pause for a second. No, but amen. Amen. I literally drew a different diagram of product market fit. So just not like the product and the market, but also like willingness to pay. Am I able to build a business model around it? And mm -hmm. you know what? Michael Scott even agreed to this because in GTM, like we have a couple of our godfathers, right? And Michael Scott was working with Harvard Innovation Lab and he's one of the like prime scientists of our industry. And he was just like, yeah, that makes sense and i was like yeah especially if you're from europe and you have your bootstrapping right like you don't have millions to burn in order to get like gazillion users in order to maybe then one day convert somebody we have to do it from a get-go so testing this simultaneously is super strong signal of not only product market fit but just like this sanity check if you have a business or you don't have a business so i love that you literally mentioned this and how did it make you feel like a founder however because everybody starts and like go works on a business with like certain vision whose problems are we solving and sometimes like this vision is not necessarily the same persona that is displaying willingness to pay signals was that ever an issue in your case or not so much no it, it was definitely a lot of discovery so most of the things we did uh, turned out to be surprised. Like, I mean, the, the, the vision and where we're going overall hasn't really changed. And I think that's where the vision is important. But I think the sequencing and the way you're, the, the order in which you're going to execute stuff, including which uh, ICP you're going to zoom in, 
I think this is something you need to let people uh, lead you to, you know? So it's like a dance. Uh, you're not the one leading the dance. You like others, people, others lead the dance for you, you know? And uh, I think for us, it was, it was, there were, there were a lot of discoveries, to be honest, like this idea that B2B SaaS didn't have any analytics in the space made for them that came through building and iterating and talking with people like, I had no clue when we started June that um, that this was an untapped, a completely untapped vertical, and and really, um, and the reasons for that, there are historical reasons for that, but we discovered them uh, afterward. Uh, and one of them is just that we are recently launched compared to other players, and other players launched uh, 12 years ago or even more than that, where the the hot the hot stuff in tech was to launch mobile apps and trying to grow on the app store, right? Today, yes. there is this generation of uh, B2B makers. And I think it's pretty, it's beautiful to see that people want to impact the nine to five of other, of other people's uh, rather than uh, building yet another uh, photo app, you know? Yeah, also in terms of brain distribution and just like how intelligence could impact humanity. And I don't want to go too much into philosophical trenches here because it's not that type of a podcast. But Enzo, just like as I'm observing on what you were saying, I mean, there were stages, there was a revolution to what you were experiences and thinking but on a personal level were you always okay with this because everybody goes in a business mm -hmm. with like a vision and sometimes like we get a little bit stubborn or a little bit like slow yeah. to take insights yeah. from the market did you maybe had any psychological barriers or are you perfect no i'm, I'm not perfect and i'm often wrong actually I'm, I'm most often wrong on this stuff so I think there are some things that and you're touching on one of the most interesting topic of founders, which is you need to be strongly believe in your in your ideas, but also being very loosely attached to them and willing to give up on them. And there are some stuff you shouldn't give up on because they just are meant to happen, but it will take time or not. I think for me, the what happened what happened with June is that my vision, my early vision of June got, got fulfilled very quickly. Like within six or 12 months, we already reached my early vision of June. And so kind of where I got to was, okay, this is done. This is proven now to the next chapter, right? Oh, and so, um, so my, my, my early vision of June was there should be a Google Analytics of product analytics, something you put a snippet and it just works out of the box, right? And startups need something more simple. This we managed to deliver very quickly and it took off really well for startups. So after that, I was like, okay, we proved that we can build. There is room for that and there is room for simplicity and people are eager to have a more simple tool and more delightful tool. But what's next, right? And this is where I started to build. Uh, I mean, I already had this longer term vision, but this is where I kind of realized that um, I shouldn't be too stubborn on the sequencing. Because at the end, uh, all the roads lead to Rome. So the, the long-term vision, to give you an idea, is that we want to be fairly horizontal as a, as a platform. We want to do a lot of things beyond product analytics. But then the order in which we did these other analytics uh, jobs uh, matter a lot less, right? It's much more interesting to build up with our businesses, our customers, and see where they go and, and follow them sometime than trying to be stubborn, right? So the story at June looks like that. You start, you have three engineers. You put June because you, you're building a product and you need to understand if your engineers are worth the money you spend with them. And then 
eventually you get some active users and so you're going to do some go-to-market. So maybe you hire a go-to-market person or the founders do the job. And then this is where like you need marketing analytics. So typically they put Google Analytics, right? Then the question is like, should you do that job, right? And then you start to grow, you have hundreds of users and you can't handle that anymore. So you hire a success person, right? Or maybe one of the founders do that or someone else. And then you do success analytics, right? You need to understand what people are doing in the product for the success person, right? So usually you buy a success analytics. Can you do that, right? And at, at this point, if you already make re- revenue, you have revenue analytics. So most of the time you have Stripe or another tool and you already have dashboards in them, right? Okay, this seems to be well covered, but should June do, do that, right? And if you look at the story of our customers and how they're growing and we're growing with them, it's a lot more exciting to build with them and to go where they them. ask you to, to be and, and make sure it fits within, within your vision than actually trying to be this visionary guy that's, you know, believe in one thing that is not, uh, you know, not, uh, not uh, achievable. So I don't believe too much in strategy. I believe in tactics a lot more. And I think what, what, what the best thing to do is just to put some guardrails at a high level on your vision and say, okay, overall, this is one direction. This is another one. This is a third one. We want this one to happen, right? So this is that, this stuff we don't do, or uh, this feedback, we don't really look at them. But everything which is in this box, uh, and it's a big, big market. We know it's a huge market. Like, let's take it, right? So I think it's a, it's, you know, I think it's a very healthy exercise to have the top-down vision and communicate it to the team. And then also let the team kind of come up with the right initiative within the direction you, you provided them. And since I was a PM, you know, before, for me, this exercise is a bit easier. At because, Zalando, mm-hmm. at N26, yeah. like uh, I won't be name roaming, but Intercom. So it's not as if you wouldn't be places. Yeah. And, 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 you know, like, I think, I think these places teach you to be very humble. Like at Intercom, the, the PM is not the CEO of the product, you know, like you're collaborating with everyone. You're often wrong. And, and so you learn this exercise, right? And I think this is why PMs do interesting founders or CEOs. I don't know if they make the best. I actually wrote a few pieces about that, that they don't necessarily make the best, but I think they do. They definitely have a really good skill, which is to be, uh, to listen, you know, they, they listen because they learn how to listen and they had no choice, right? I love this. And also from my perspective, there were some of the smartest folks that I have had for book reviewers. Whenever like I have a customer discovery problem or just like problem when it comes to business modeling or something like that, they are usually like the first people that I would go to because first of all, ego is very low. Second of all, like they know their shit because they have very interdisciplinary knowledge and they have like this broadness that I cannot get elsewhere. And first of all, they are not telling you what to do you know so they are not these dictators but they help you think and i think that's like a superpower these days to just like ask better questions but so we don't get into much into the nitty-gritty <laughs> um i would love to learn about your go-to-market plan for june.so um so yeah. how did you get your first hundred users what happened then and what are you doing yeah. now I mean, the first thing is what you said about PMs. They're very specific people. And so the go-to-market is also very adapted to their personalities and so on. So I think the first step for us was community. We started with our first, having our first customers from a startup studio we built, we work with uh, in the early days of June. And then we did an, an accelerator in the US called Y Combinator. And I think the 51st 
active users were basically coming from these two places. So community, uh, you know, network, outbound, reaching out to people you know, and so on. Um, that's step one. Then step two is you want to get out of your echo chamber and you want to make a, make a dent in, into the world. And I think here it was, you know, communicating on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, launching on product hunt, these kind of things that are a bit one-off, but it doesn't matter because in the beginning you have no one. <laughs> so you just need to, you just need to have some people that know that you exist. And then when you start to have this kind of like on and off motion where you start to launch and it goes up, up and down and, and so on, that's when you, you start to think about a repeating motion. So something that you can, you can scale and, and predict. And, uh, and also you have the word of mouth or the virality, like you have your product that starts to do a bit of the job too, right? Which is the good news, meaning that you don't have a, if one day you're sick and you, you can't go to work, your, your company still uh, move forward. Finally, some leverage. <laughs> and, uh, finally, yeah. And, and I think one thing, like, uh, one thing we learned on the go-to-market, so we're experimenting all the time. We tried everything, which we tried a lot of things. Again, we were mostly wrong. But the one thing I learned maybe is that our persona ICP is very sophisticated. So it's founding teams, product managers. These people, they don't really like to be told what to do. So the more we can put content out there, which is valuable and they can consume it and then decide on the timing to um, adopt a new analytics and put June in the benchmark and so on, the more successful we are. So the strategy for us is basically um, create some awareness with valuable content. Uh, make sure this content is also different from the traditional content. Uh, make sure it's uh, aligned with the philosophy of the product. So, for instance, at June we we don't like SEO. We do a few white ebooks, but we don't do white papers or stuff like that. Uh, even though it's the most used channel in our industry, because we think it's um it's not aligned with the philosophy of the product. If you have to read uh, 100 pages to understand uh, a metric and then to put this into application into your analytics, then um, the learning curve is too steep and, and, and we're trying, it's one of the prime we're trying to solve, right? So basically, uh, yeah, there is a, a famous competitor in our space. They, they have one of the most um, performing piece of content is an ebook of 140 pages on user retention, um, you know, like we will never, ever, ever, ever do something like that. Not because it's not a good strategy because they get a lot of lead for that, but because it goes against, completely against the philosophy of the product and the company, right? And so we're trying, we're trying to create this content right now, which is, um, you know, a bit out of the box and, 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 and I would say maybe a little bit more entertaining also in a way. And uh, and more crisp for sure, more crisp. So um, yeah, LinkedIn, social media has been a thing. Uh, communities are still a thing, pretty active there. Uh, word of mouth is still a big a big one for us. Content, long form content, sometimes we do, but then it's going to be on very uh, weird topics. So for instance, one piece of content that my co-founder is going to release next week is what uh, politics and startups have in common. And so he really, uh, he goes hard on that. It really explains a lot of shit that people have never heard of. And I'm, I'm sure it's going to be, uh, it's very provocative, but I'm sure it's going to do a big uh, yeah, sensation, I hope. Oh my uh, God. And, and this, this kind of stuff, yeah. So that's the way we think about content. I love, I keep mentioning that guy, but there is a, 
a teacher maybe you heard of McLuhan. Mm -hmm. You heard of That's him? That's new to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was. So I think he was a he was a teacher in a, a very popular, uh, famous uh, university in uh, in Canada, and um, and basically he he came up with a lot of the principles of modern marketing and distribution. He's a bit old school, but some of the stuff he said are the best. And one my, one of my favorite quotes from him is he said that the medium is the message. So he said that the the channels you use to distribute your content, your service, your product, whatever, it it is already a message in itself. So if you use television, it doesn't matter what you put in your messaging. Television says something about your product. If you use an ebook, it doesn't matter what you put in your ebook. Your ebook says something about yourself, right? And so yeah. I think we, we're trying to we're trying very hard to use channels that we think fit um modern tool tool SaaS, right? Like June is a next gen SaaS. It's it's not um, it's not like a traditional SaaS. It's, it's different, right? And so that way, in that sense, it can't be distributed the, the traditional way, right? And it's not just like us, like having going through that uh, intellectual masturbation, right? It's like literally when you see June on Twitter, it doesn't give you the same feeling that when you see June in an ad, in a shitty banner that you know the company has paid for and that no one will ever click, you know? It's a, like you get a different perception on the company. Like already... You haven't even clicked on the ad. You haven't even signed up and tried the product that you are already thinking something, right. perceiving something about mm -hmm. the product and the company, right? And these touch points are, I think, very, very important and often underestimated. And we put a lot of uh, uh, of care in, in that, you know? Mm, that's so interesting to unpack because I would say that the glue is just like persona, your RCP and understanding their not just preference, but also the intelligence. Because if I said to you, Enzo, these are seven steps how to get to product market fit in the next eight days, would you give a shit? No, because, you know, this is not true. And this is just like some inflated promise that is out there, right? You have been there. You have done that. It's impossible. It's just like a hook. And a lot of smart folks that I know, especially from product management, they have this cringe feeling about posting on social media because just like the majority of content, especially on LinkedIn, is like five years ago, I never imagined that I would be able to record a podcast in English. Today, I'm here speaking to like a president of the company from Y Combinator and winner of Kitty Award or Product Hunt, whatnot. Oh my God, life is wonderful. And not everybody <laughs> has like this level of openness slash like adaptability to cringeness and outgoingness that is fine. And I mean, you know, by encouraging more smart voices, and this is literally my personal mission here, by encouraging more smart voices to do smart knowledge sharing, to think critically, to engage in discussions in a constructive yet critically acclaimed manner, I think that we are making the platforms better. Just like I agree. Si since you are one of those folks, how do you cope this on a micro level? Like, do you ever, fuck, I have to publish today, damn, I don't have any ideas what to write about. What is your yeah. process? How do you manage? I mean, first of all, I completely agree. I think I encourage everyone uh, to, to, to post. I mean, I started as a journal. I was just like a personal thing just to make me feel good. And then eventually I realized that what made me feel good also was a, could be interesting for people. Uh, so it's a win-win. It's perfect. Let's, let's do it a lot more, you know. Uh, I even reached a point where 
I'm so confident that if you put some effort into constantly doing content, it will work for you. So something I, I, I do with my friends or the people I like that really want to ramp up on LinkedIn, I tell them that if they post a hundred posts for a hundred days in a row and it doesn't work, I give them 500 bucks, but I literally give them 500 bucks. Like I'm, I'm, I'm so confident that it will work for them. Have you ever done that it? I, I, I'm, I'm wiring the money right away, right? But they have to no, do that. No, but have you ever done it? Was that ever the case? No, if they complied? No, because, no, because what happens is like either people give up or it works before the 100 posts, right? And so in both <laughs> cases, I'm right. <laughs> but most people give up before. And that's why I put the money. So the money is a motivation to go till the end. And then it works before I have to give the money. But uh, in case... I have to ever give the money, I would learn a lot about what doesn't work <laughs> on LinkedIn, you know? So in any case, it's a good, it's a good usage of, of, of that money. And, um, and so I agree with you. I think it's really a matter of like being persistent and, 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 and creating stuff. For me, uh, it's been very, very uh, lean, very basic. I don't know how you organize. I would love to hear actually how you organize. But for me, there is no, a dog. You, you really won't. You really won't love to hear <laughs> that. Just tell how you're organized. <laughs> Okay. Mine is very unorganized. So basically what I do is I have bullet points of the, whenever I have an idea, I, th I throw them in a topic, a backlog of ideas. This is what saves my ass. What saves my ass is just to have this constant backlog. If I didn't have that, every day I would wake up and I would be like, I don't know what to write about. So this is the trick. The trick is to have the, is to have the, the backlog of ideas so that you can just cherry pick from it. And you can reshuffle the ideas in this backlog exactly the way, same way you reshuffle project in the product backlog. And then what I do is um, I try to, I put a, a timer. I try to do a post in like less than two hours. Sometimes it's 30 minutes. Sometimes it's two hours, depending if there is carousel. Uh, carousel is the most time consuming, to be fair. And, uh, and then I just try to post every day. And the way I do that now, I packed everything on Monday. So I take one full day to do it. And the reason why the CEO of a startup uh, is willing to spend a full day doing uh, LinkedIn Thanks stuff. For Yes, it's because it's 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 very good for the business. So for us, it's been around. It, it has brought around twenty percent of our customers to join oh, wow. from LinkedIn. Yeah, so it's it's a it's a fairly big one for us, uh, and it's definitely worth twenty percent of the time of a, of one of the founders. You know, so especially at our stage. So that's for us. Our personal is on is on LinkedIn. Um, they are professional people that like to consume stuff. The stuff I share are suitable for LinkedIn and I grew up with LinkedIn. So for me, it's very natural. So for all this reason, it's working, but I think LinkedIn is not always the best platform for everyone, you know? So it, it, it depends. And I think there's a limit. Like yesterday, I was uh, having a chat with a, a guy who, who worked with another guy who basically like was the biggest influencer on LinkedIn in France. And the guy has disappeared for the platform because basically he did the burnout. And mm -hmm. the reason for him was that he became so big that he started to have haters and eventually this affected him and he just went burst. Uh, he's doing good now. He has an agency and so on. But I think what you also learn is that uh, it's good to be on this platform. It's good to grow, but eventually also it's good to know where the limits are. So limits can be personal. Maybe you want to watch out what you say, what you don't say. And uh, also for the business, there are limits, right? You can't grow uh, 100x a month with only uh, one of the founder being active on LinkedIn, right? Got it. And also in terms of metrics, because like your data analytics guy, and I mean, I know a bunch of like LinkedIn influencers who are fucking broke. Luckily, you are getting 20% of your 
just like revenues and like things having like very, very, very tangible business results for you. But you know how it is like if you are writing right now, I'm in Mexico looking at this lizard talking about business. I mean, you can harvest likes, you can harvest reach, but it is just like the wrong types of metrics to optimize for. So you know how it is. In terms of shiny object syndrome, everybody would like to have like a couple of posts per week that goes like beyond 100K or just like 300K or whatever. I don't know if you have ever been on a million. I have not. But nevertheless, you know, how to come with peace so that you don't become this algo junkie who's just like saying, Enzo, thank you for sharing this post Lead analytics is really not the ultimate way how to do the startup development. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, no, that's a great question, actually. I don't think since I'm not making I'm not making money, direct money from my uh visibility. I don't know how you call that on, on, on social media. So I've never had to you know, farm likes or stuff like that too much. I think, I, I think like it, my life doesn't depend on it or the business doesn't depend on it. Right. Like it's 20%. If it were to go down to 10%, we have other channels or we're developing other channels, stuff like that. Uh, if LinkedIn algorithm change overnight and I'm a shadow ban, whatever, I don't know. Anything can happen. You know, uh, I don't know. I've heard crazy stories, you know, you never know, but, um, I don't, so I don't have this push that I think maybe sometime make people do crazy, crazy stuff, you know? But I think for me, it's been just a rule of thumb. I'm trying not to promote June or my business more than I would say one time out of one post out of 20, maybe something like that, 5%. Uh, Because I think, or directly at least, right? Like, oh, we have a release today. Uh, That would be like one post, one post per month or something like that, max, you know, or maybe twice max. Uh, And the reason is because I mean, you can tell that it's not what people are the most interested about, first of all. And it's just like, it delivers less value than something else that I could write about, right? So I'm like, mm, okay, these are the converting posts. These are cool. They're good for the business. They're good for awareness. But if I do, do too many of them, I know it's going to hurt my uh, the, the people that you know enjoy reading some of the stuff I, I write. So the, the rest, like the 95% of the case is like content that delivers value. And I think I have like three or four main topics I'm trying to write about that I know people like. And I've been the same way we've been developing a product listening to people. I've been developing content listening to people. So sometimes I write uh, about something and it just takes off. And I'm like, okay, something is interesting here. People seem eager. Like I'm not aware too much of this topic, but maybe I can dig. And so like to touch on the million uh, impressions that uh, you you mentioned, actually that's how I think I ended up writing about a lot of the topics. Like I had a few posts that had more than a million impressions and I was like, Ooh, okay, this thing is absolutely massive. And you then you Google for it and you realize no one is writing about it. And you're like, okay, that's why people like it. You had like 1 million impressions on your posts. I think, I think I got, I think last year when I wrote first time for like about product management pre PMF, I think the two first posts did 3 millions together or something like that. That's insane. Congratulations. I mean, salute. Wow. I mean, it's impressions on, on LinkedIn. It doesn't matter, huh? but we don't care. But uh, yeah. I think, it's I think what I learned... It's a bank account, but it's a signal. It's a very strong signal. It's a signal. Yeah, we're talking about signals. That's a signal, right? Like suddenly you're like, okay, that topic clearly resonates, right? 
And then you keep writing about it. And then I get, I think you get the, an even better signal, which is people write to you. And they're like, dude, that thing changed my week, changed, changed my months. Like, thank you for writing it, you know? And suddenly you just like, you assume your role is just to post daily, as you said, but it's actually a lot more. You have actually humans on the other side that read your stuff, go to bed, think about it, maybe have a discussion with their partner. Uh, the next day come, maybe have a discussion with their boss, with their manager, with their team. Like th this thing is like real, you know, it it's social media. So you think it's like, it's not, it's algorithm, but behind algorithm, there are humans, you know. And, and, that, so that's, and the relationships and so on. And like, look, uh, we, uh, like, I, I feel, I feel almost like I know you because I've seen, I've consumed a lot of your content in the past. And I think you had exactly the I attitude I expected you to have. And, uh, I think that's the beauty also of the internet, but that's what I keep telling my parents when they tell me it's fake and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, I mean, we are a remote company. I know very well. Everyone in my team, even though there are some people I see twice a year, you know, three times a year. Yeah, that's fair enough. And also just like in terms of outsourcing, because, you know, as a busy founder and like we're wrapping up here, so we need to go tactical into the advices that we need to go to founders. So a lot of people are just like, okay, maybe it works for Igzo. He's a very talented guy. He even does his own designs, but my marketing is a little bit lazy and maybe they wouldn't like to do it. And maybe there is ChatGPT who could do it instead of me, or yeah. I should just like hire ghostwriters. So talking to yeah. founders, to product managers, to experts with this ridiculously, insanely intelligent brain, but social media shyness, what would you say? Why does it pay off to build in public? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very biased question, but I'm, I, bought it, I bought in already. So, so I guess for... For me, delegating the content has never worked on, on LinkedIn and Twitter because I think if it doesn't come from you or if it's not very authentic, I feel people find it. And I think it's a bit like finding your PMF. If you're not able to figure this out, it's going to be very hard for someone else to figure things out for you, you know? I think they once you have rather, the machining plan... Yeah, sorry. Mm. They would rather forgive you poor English or grammar mistakes than just like being vanilla. Yeah, this, this is another problem. And then, you know, when, when AI speaks today, it's very like, uh, I don't know. AI sounds like AI. Like, it's like, oh yeah, amazing. Today I have something to tell you. You know, it's like, it's like someone a bit lame talking to you. You're like, mm, doesn't, doesn't sound like a real person. I, I heard you can correct that because now you can prompt in a very smart way and, and tell the AI not to sound too lame. But every, every time I get something a bit too, uh, you know, it's a bit robotic, right? Let's be honest today, right? I think this is going to improve though. You don't you don't feel you don't feel the same about AI? No. Sorry, I stopped using it in November because for me, I mean if my folks use it, that's fine. But you know, I need to have my profound thinking and for me it's not even good enough for idea generation. Right now, from this conversation that I have with you, Enzo, I probably harvested more ideas that I could ever like quarry on some freaking AI that would say, but when you are calling people out for being vanilla, to be inclusive. Mm. <laughs> that's pretty fun. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's, and it's politically, politically correct and so on. But this again, you can, you can fix, you know, you can tell like, hey, be uh, abrusive, like take opinion, take a stance. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, TLDR, I didn't find a way to delegate. I think some stuff you can delegate is like the design typically. Yeah. But something I learned also here is that if it's if it looks too good, it looks less authentic, right? So uh, I think last week I did a, a post and some guy commented on my uh, post. Uh, you should tell, uh, I did the design. It was pretty bad. And then someone commented, uh, you should tell your designer to, uh, to resign. <laughs> and uh, it was a fun comment because he's right. That person was right. The, the design was terrible. But at the same time, I was like, this is why people know it's me. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? I so, know what you mean. Um, it's authentic. I wouldn't. And, and sometimes, honestly, I see the opposite. I see these amazing designs on LinkedIn. I'm like, whoa, who did that? Masterpiece. And then there is five likes and I'm like, it's too beautiful. It's too beautiful, you know? So now I'm launching YouTube actually uh, with my, cha my channel in the coming days. It's scrappy. <laughs> we should totally bad. link it this under the episode. We should totally add this link, yeah. That would be awesome, yeah. I, the channel yeah. is out on Sunday, so I'll, 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 I'll be happy to give it to you. But I think LinkedIn has this thing, right? Like you don't take a video editor from uh, Los Angeles to do uh, YouTube editing, right? <laughs> You take a software online and you take the presets. And then eventually you can improve with a professional editor and so on. Happy to do that, you know. But you want people to know that it's a craft, you know. Like it's this guy doing this stuff. Like this is like the YouTube game, right? Teenagers in their, in their dorms that uh, borrow the camera from their, their, their parents and, and now they're trying to do something, right? So I think it's, uh, I think this is why, uh, Just to wrap up on LinkedIn, I think uh, why uh, delegating uh, is so hard these days. I'm sure some people have figured it out. I don't know if you know people that have figured it out. I do, but it's a long-term relationship. You cannot get it done like with some Fiverr gig or something like that. It's impossible, but you know, it takes a lot of communication, a lot of understanding the domain, a lot of understanding the branding and co-creation in order to just like resonate in the same way that we were describing now. So, so last yeah. but not least, we have to stop in two minutes. So I give you an open mic. What do you want to say to our folks? Uh, what is important for them and how to continue this conversation. Wow. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah. So one thing I'm doing these days, I'm going to write more about is how to help product managers to actually start a company. Because whenever I meet product managers, this thing com comes up all the time. Like how can I build a company eventually? And so I figure out that I haven't talked about it a lot. So if PMs out there, have a dream of like starting a company or like they're, they're not 100% under, sure, but you know, they're just spinning up something on the side and have this entrepreneurial uh, mindset or just want to join an early stage startup and be the first product manager there and so on. Um, they can approach me like I'm super, I'm super keen to explore more of this topic in the coming months. I think it's a, I think it's a taboo because, you know, telling that you want to leave your job, like no managers wants to hear about that basically. And a bunch and of imposter sure syndrome as well. And, and yeah, and of course, like you're, you're like, the leap seems very big, but, uh, I mean, I've done that. I've, I know a lot of people that have done it. So I would be happy to, to, you know, to support there or just at least to hear how they think about it. Fantastic. So best channel, probably LinkedIn and Twitter, anything else to add in addition to your newest YouTube channel, which I'm very amused <laughs> to follow. It's going to be fun for sure. Uh, the book I'm writing this book, it's going to be, uh, done in the coming uh, weeks very soon. ETA is March. 
It's called the first product manager and it's about doing product management in early stage startups. And uh, I can give you a link for the VIP list so you would get the first, people can get the, the first chapter for free, basically. Let's go, Vip. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast. This conversation has been absolutely incredible. We wish you good luck on all the aspects of fronts of your life. And just like you do you, you have been incredible and keep on rocking and rolling on building in public and just like help the gathers to do what you did. And that's it. Thank you so much for watching and see you later. Thanks for having me. Likewise. Hey, I very much appreciate that you listened to this episode. If you liked it, definitely let me know on LinkedIn, hit like, subscribes and whatever platforms you are using. But more importantly, if you are hungry for more go-to-market, tangible go-to-market secrets, you are welcome to subscribe to my Substack. I send it out every Thursday. It's for free and usually it consists of three or four different pieces. The first one is always the example. So what was actually going on in the real world. Then we have a couple of like mental models, tools, frameworks, mood boards, mirror boards, whatever, in order to provide you some tangible value. And last but not least, I am so looking forward to hearing from you and just like make sure that we are producing content, which is resonating with you and answering the questions that you have. If you want, definitely connect on LinkedIn. And as I always say, let's go to market.